0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Today we're going to do a few things. We are going to open up again this small little paragraph we've been looking at for four or five weeks now in Colossians chapter one. Uh, We are going to talk about what it is to be a part of Christmas and what Christmas means for us today. Uh, And then we're going to land the plane by celebrating communion together. Uh, So I hope that is uh, helpful for us all. I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive in. Let's pray. A Gracious God, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you what it says to the world, uh, what it offers us in Christ having come. Lord, we pray that uh, you might come now. And by your spirit, be working amongst us through your word. That you would open our hearts to hear what you're saying, see what you have done for us. Uh, and as, as Ben shared in his own interview, Lord, to uh, experience your love for us. And so, Lord, help us know that, uh, not manufacture that, but know it from you through your Holy Spirit. And so make Jesus big and beautiful as he really is to us right now. It's in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, I thought I'd start just by uh, bringing up, you might have seen recently, particularly shared through uh, the social medias, uh, and perhaps you've tried it yourself, this new technology, which is taking the world by storm, uh, created by OpenAI. It's called ChatGPT, where you can kind of plug into this new website, this artificial intelligence, whatever you want it to do for you, and it will spit out in human-like sounding prose Uh, answers to you. And so you can find meal plans. uh, You can have love letters in 18th century language uh, spout out for you, which my wife has already been the recipient of and uh, very appreciative of. Uh, Our marriage is going to new levels uh, now. Uh, But you can have kind of this AI do anything for you if it it requires language. Uh, It so I, uh, uh, you can kind of imagine the, the options that are there for us, and there's a reason that this uh, new technology has kind of been taken on at an unprecedented pace. I uh, read that it had taken Netflix three and a half years to have one million users. It took Facebook ten months. It took Instagram two and a half months to find one million users. It took this chat, GPT, five days to have one million users. And it's that popular because of the variety of things that it can do. Your kids are never going to have to do homework again because artificial intelligence will do it for you. You won't have to write your own Christmas cards because artificial intelligence will do it for you. Uh, Maybe some pastors will no longer have to write sermons again because artificial intelligence will do it. In fact, I tested GPT in the lead-up to this morning, and I asked it, uh, tell me a joke I can use at the top of my Christmas sermon. And it said, here's a joke you can use at the beginning of your Christmas sermon. Why did the gingerbread man go to the doctor because he was feeling a little crumbly. But then I was very impressed by the, the, the ministry philosophy of the artificial intelligence, because it said, this joke is lighthearted and could help put your audience at ease and make them feel more receptive to your message. You could use it to introduce the theme of your sermon and to set the tone for the rest of the service. It's important to remember, however, that the joke should be used to enhance your sermon, not to detract from it. Use it wisely and in moderation to help make your sermon more engaging and memorable for your audience. It's on to something. Are you engaged? It's yeah, Maybe, yes. Uh, but this is kind of artificial intelligence. Move over Bible college lecturers. It is going to take the world by storm. Uh, but there is something compelling, isn't there, about this kind of technology. Something that, I, I guess, it, it offers us a hope for the future, particularly that maybe, just, just maybe, this, this kind of breaking in of a new world, the artificial intelligence, well, it might present this newfound potential to us as a species, as humanity, that we could now perhaps uh, move on up to new levels of productivity, no longer having to waste our time writing letters, no longer have to waste our time doing all these things, artificial intelligence can do it for us, so we can use our time instead to give it to to the loved ones that we'd love to be spending more time with. And because we spend more time together, maybe we're going to rise to new levels of of unity amongst one another, and then we'll have kind of uh, peace among humanity and goodwill to all men. And so we will arise to a newfound kind of stage of utopia amongst people on earth. Maybe we'll even one day arise to kind of technological singularity and it will take us into this, this scene of feeling transcendent above the muck and the mess and the mire of ordinary human life. And technology and technological advancement kind of sells us this vision, a chance to get beyond the mediocre lives that we live in between Christmases and find this this newfound peace and utopia beyond changing nappies and, and doing laundry, beyond mindless spreadsheets and Excel formulas, beyond more clients and more homework and endless garden work. What we have in artificial intelligence could perhaps draw us higher up and further in But at the same time, as we all kind of test this technology, don't we also realize that there is just something not quite there for us? It is still a bit gimmicky to us because it is simply not the same as interacting with a fellow human. It is not the same as being or sharing in the human experience. I asked uh, the the bot what it is uh, to be human or if it would like to be human. And it said, as a large language model trained by OpenAI, I don't have a personal preference or or desires. I'm purely a digital entity. My sole purpose is to assist users by generating human-like text based on the input I receive. And on and on it goes. It is very vanilla. It has no preferences, no desires, no experiences. It knows nothing of what it is to be you or me. And so this, this ceiling that we've pushed through as a society reminds us actually there is nothing like being... Human, Nothing like getting dirt under the fingernails, nothing like the warm embrace from a family member at the international arrivals terminal of the airport, nothing like the the coolness of turning over your pillow on a hot night. AI will never know these things. There is joy, there is wonder, there is excitement, there is connection with those we love the most in the human experience. And yet at the same time, it will also never know the harsh reality of being human, the difficulty of being human. And this is what Christmas brings to the fore, isn't it? Because Christmas, it's a, it's a time of great celebration, a, a time of great unity, a time of great human connection, and yet at the same time, a time that we're all reminded of the absence of all of that. Because at the same time, there's lonely, loneliness, there's strain, there's disconnection. There's grief for those who are no longer with us, whether it was a relational breakdown that caused distance or death itself, taking loved ones from us. And so in many ways, Christmas is the best of times, and it is the worst of times. And today we come to these two verses, two very short verses, and they help us make sense of the human experience that only we as humans do experience this experience that we're reminded of at Christmas. That the world is so good, so full of meaning and joy. And at the same time, the world is so harsh and so difficult. And it needs to be endured. And what we're going to see is that indeed there is something or someone outside of ourselves, beyond human reach, who has come to us, become like us. He doesn't send us data that, that doesn't get us, but instead has come to experience all the joys and the grief of the human experience so that we actually might get what we want in our that we might be drawn up out of ourselves and connect with the transcendence. So let me read these two verses for us, and then we're going to double-click in on uh, just a few of the phrases within it. We're in Colossians 1. Verse 19 and 20, it says this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now let's first talk about the first few, uh, well the first verse there, verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. There is a lot of Christmas packed in to that little sentence. If you're just joining us today, uh, you should know we've been walking through this paragraph, which, of which this uh, two verses is the final two verses. We've been walking through this paragraph for a few weeks now, uh, and it is a section that is all about Jesus. If you don't know, Jesus of Nazareth is a man who walked this earth some 2,000 years ago over in the Middle East, and he, uh, in many ways, lived a very simple life, Life. He grew up in the kind of the backwoods, the, the, the uh, outskirts of ancient Israel. His dad was a tradie. He hung out with friends. He uh, never really travelled across the world or made groundbreaking discoveries. He didn't become famous or any kind of uh, popular accomplishments. But this section of the Bible that we're reading now was written some thirty years after this man Jesus walked the earth after he died, and it is telling us that that man. Jesus that he embodied or he had, as it says, in him all the fullness of God. And so Paul who wrote this little letter, he's the author he's telling us that actually that Jesus of Nazareth was God in the flesh. And so there's a reason why the relatively simple life of Jesus has actually made a disproportionate impact in the world. Because I'm sure you've heard about him. More songs have been sung to him. More books have been written about him than anyone else. Time itself, whether we measure it in BC and AD or BCE and CE, the pivot point is the life of Jesus. Some 2.8 billion people right now claim to follow him. Paul says it's because Jesus was God. Jesus had all the fullness of God in him. Jesus was God in the flesh. And if we take the rest of the Bible into account, we know that what is being said here, isn't that that Jesus is kind of some other type of God who came down? And so there are kind of two gods in the world, the God who kind of made all things, and then the God who came in the flesh later. Rather, we say, no, Jesus was born into the world in the flesh with the fullness of the one, the true God dwelling in him. And so texts like this is where uh, we Christians get the idea of the Trinity. The Trinity is not a biblical word, but it is an essential word that summarizes biblical important realities. And it's an essential belief to be a Christian because it's like the middle pole in a large tent, that it holds up the universe so that the show can go on. And it supports the realities that we know to be essential. And so the Bible is very clear that this Jesus that we celebrate each and every Christmas, this Jesus that we hear about in this particular sentence is God, that Jesus' Father along with him, God the Father, he is God, that Jesus' Spirit, whom we call the Holy Spirit, he too is God, that God exists, three persons in one God, toward the end of Jesus' life. We have a a lot of data about what Jesus came to do and say and toward the end of his life as he was preparing to to be betrayed. Uh, We have uh, a biographical account written by a guy named John who is one of his closest friends and in it the final uh, or or the the few uh, chapters from verse uh, chapter 13 to to 18 kind of unpack the, the final night of Jesus' life. And so we get an insight into what Jesus wanted to tell his disciples, who I'm sure at that time were starting to feel a little antsy and anxious about what is going to happen to this guy they've kind of hitched their lives to. And Jesus wants to tell them. Jesus wants to reassure them. Jesus wants to comfort them through all those chapters by telling them about the Trinity. He says, I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. He promises to them the Holy Spirit. He says, I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper, the Spirit of truth, and he will dwell in you. Then he says that in that day, you will know that I'm in my Father, you in me, and I in you. And So just when his disciples would be most prone to fear and to doubt and to a lack of confidence, Jesus wants to tell them about the Trinity. He wants to remind them who is God. And he wants to remind them how they can be connected and in that God. And so it's an essential conviction for us because it's essential to the uh, the Christmas message that that baby Jesus lying in a manger that we remember at Christmas, he would grow up to live a perfect life. He would grow up to die a substitutionary death. But if Jesus is God, we can have no confidence. Jesus isn't God, we can have no confidence that he was able to do that. That Jesus promised to give all who would follow him his spirit, fill us with his Holy Spirit. And yet, if Jesus isn't God, we can have no confidence that he is able to do that and be with us today. Jesus promised to forgive sin, to rise again from the dead. But if Jesus isn't God, we have no confidence that he has the ability and the authority to forgive sin or the power to conquer death. And so because the Father is God, because Jesus is God, because the Holy Spirit is God, we can have confidence. We can have hope. I asked Chat GPT to explain the Trinity to me in simple terms. And it actually did quite a good job, except it tried to bring up an analogy and it said, hey, the Trinity is like a three-leaf clover. And we always go wrong when we try to get kind of earthly created things to explain the uncreated, to explain the creator. Because there's no human analogy that can quite sum up and and match the beauty and the complexity of the Godhead. And we should expect that. We should expect... That if God has indeed made us and designed this world as complex yet as workable and as efficient as it is, we should expect that our created, finite, physical brains have limits to their understanding of the uncreated, metaphysical, infinite, limitless creator. And in fact, if everything was so simple and easy to fathom within our minds, then we might actually doubt all the more that... God had been made in our image. Like little kids who this summer are going to make holes in the sand to let the ocean run into it. Our brains cannot fit the immensity of who God is into them. But here we're told all the fullness of God was dwelling in Jesus. And so Colossians 1:19 says, helps us make sense of Christmas. The Christmas didn't start with some quacks kind of latching onto a normal Palestinian dude and making something out of nothing. That the very first Christmas began because God himself came down from above and he entered into our world in Jesus. And so our attempts of, of human ingenuity to try to raise us and see progress and get beyond ourselves Well, actually, the message of Christmas provides us even better hope. That we don't actually have to rise above and fill our great human potential to kind of reach this utopia. That God himself has come down to us. God himself has entered into the mess of our world and made himself known to us. Experience the fullness of the human experience, the joy and the despair. God himself took on humanity, putting on human hands so that he might heal, putting on a human voice, speech, so that he might preach and teach and tell us about who he is, putting on human arms so that he might be able to comfort and embrace those whom the world had rejected coming with broad shoulders that he might be able to bear our burdens and know what it is to experience life. So there is magic about Christmas. There is meaning. There is depth. There is hope because God has come to us. Now, after telling us about who Jesus is, uh, this passage then gets to the why. Why did Jesus come in in Colossians 1.20? It then says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And so God was in him, all the fullness of God in him, but God was also working through him. And so Jesus came with a purpose, not just to reveal who God is, but to reconcile, we're told, reconcile all things to himself. And that word reconcile hints to us that there's something that is in need of reconciliation, that there's perhaps, there's difficulty, there's distance, there's division. And that arises each Christmas. That we sense, don't we, that the world is not how it should be. Uh, Just this week on Monday, uh, myself and a few of us, uh, shout out to Carl and Pete uh, from church, we participated in what's called the Longest Day. The Longest Day is a fundraiser for the Cancer Council where you play as many golf holes as possible in a day. And so we were out there from 7am to 7pm. And if you know what the weather was like on Monday, it felt like it was longer than 12 hours. And we uh, got through 54 holes Uh, And golf sells itself, at least, you know, there'll be some golfers in the room, but many others will lift their nose at us who are golfers in the room, because it sells itself, doesn't it, to us. It's kind of some kind of luxury sport. You know, there are prestigious, meant to be, prestigious clubhouses and opening up to pristine, curated fairways and perfectly cut grass across rolling hills. And on Monday, on the one hand, we kind of had it as as good as you can get. You know, I took a whole day off to, to play Golf. It was like, this is, this is, this is awesome. Uh, and we were playing across the, the, the rolling hills of Roeville. Uh, this is, this is uh, just a, a great day. There was quiet. There was stillness. We were in touch with nature as well. You know, there were kangaroos and bunny rabbits and all sorts of stuff that are playing out there, which is a classic Australian golfing experience. In many ways, it was awesome. Then the reality hits home while, while you're playing is that you, you, the, the reason that you're actually playing is, is to raise money for the Cancer Council. The, 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 you, can't, you can't kind of entertain yourself away from the reality of why you are there, that cancer is a real thing in the world that has taken multiple of my loved ones. That yes, it's actually, it's great to be out there in nature. It's great to be there kind of with the kangaroos, but then it makes that the whole course is riddled with kangaroo poo. And so you're reminded kind of every time your ball rolls that, this world is not as it should be. I got attacked by a duck. <laughs> it, the world is, is not as it should be. The, the quietness and the stillness of what was hoped to be uh, around was, was broken by torrential rain every 30 minutes. This is not to mention my golf game, which showed itself up across the day. And life is like that. There, there's great times Of great joy, yet there is always seems to be, doesn't there? Something not quite. Something is off, not quite right. And maybe in your own life, maybe you you're you're killing it at work. But because you're killing it at work, and you're getting more and more responsibility, and kind of moving on in your reputation, you're so tired when you come home that you're short with your spouse and your kids. Maybe your love life is is finally sorted. And you found a romantic partner, but you're riddled with bitterness and regret and insecurity because of the ways your previous relationships ended. Maybe you're accomplishing a lot in your life and outwardly you look impressive. Your LinkedIn is on point. You are looking like you are making it in the world, but privately, behind the scenes, you can't stop watching porn. You can't stop gossiping about your friends because you feel like you've got to one-up them. You keep having relational strain with people because you're you're harsh or you're too driven and ambitious. You flick through social media and you start coveting other people's lives, even though you're trying to live a life that other people might covet from you. Something is off with the world. Something is off in ourselves. And the Bible gives us an explanation where this word reconciliation is pointing toward. It gives us an explanation that there's this unreconciled reality. And it tells us that that actually starts at the beginning of the Bible, just a few chapters in, where our first parents, they, they cho- chose not to obey God, but rather ignore him and, and do what was right in their own eyes. And by making that choice to do what was right in their own eyes, suddenly their, their nature was now strained with him, that their disobedience caused division and caused distance between God and humanity that this holy God could no longer bear us now unholy and so the two couldn't go together. I did a wedding last weekend and in the sermon that I uh, preached I I quoted uh, the actor from the third best Christmas movie that's ever been made Uh, if you don't know the best movie ever Christmas movie ever made is Hook uh, the early 90s, Peter Pan. It was set at Christmas. Uh, the second best Christmas movie is Home Alone. Uh, the third best Christmas movie is Elf. And Will Ferrell, the, the main actor in Elf, not in the movie, but elsewhere, he's quoted as saying, before you marry a person, you should first make them use a computer with slow internet to see who they really are. <laughs> and I tried to make the point, and I'll make it again, that, see, who we really are is the problem, isn't it? Who we really are Is hard to deal with. Who we really are, we have to endure. All of us are hard to live with. And the Bible cuts us deep because it exposes this reality in us. The Bible tells us that we are sinners, that we're sinners by nature and choice. And so the amazing thing that this verse here in Colossians tells us is that God took on flesh, not to affirm us. Not to tell us that, hey, you're doing great. Just, you just need to keep going to your, fulfill your potential. Not to, not to tell us that, to be better. Not to inspire our goodness within. No, Jesus, God took on flesh to come and reconcile us. To reconcile our sinful selves. Our broken selves. To reconcile who we really are. With him. In all his holiness and all his glory, God came to reconcile all things to himself. And such is his love for you. That God actually came. Christmas happened for you. God came so that you would be reconciled with him. Christmas tells us that that God wants you back. That God wants you to be in relationship with him. God wants you to be reconciled with him. And finally, this verse tells us how that happened. The end of verse 20, making peace by the blood of his cross. How would that reconciliation happen by the blood of his cross? In the, one of the biographical accounts of Jesus, we get that uh, early nativity scene and the angels uh, are telling the shepherds what's going to happen and they uh, are seen to, or heard to, to be singing. And what they're singing In Luke chapter 2, is glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. You see, the angels aren't there just singing about how good it is that God's come to the earth. Not just talking about the birth of Jesus, but they're singing because they know why he's come. They know what's going to happen. They know that actually peace is going to be the result here. And so they're pointing forward to the death. Of Jesus, God came in the flesh in Jesus to reconcile all things to Himself. But He was going to do that by having to endure uh, the Roman cross in crucifixion, by taking in His own flesh the barrier between us and God, our sin and its consequences, death. Author Dorothy says once said, "Whatever the answer to the problem of evil, this much is true: God took His own medicine." You see, God took upon himself the consequences for our sin, for our disobedience, our ignoring of God in death, the cost of going our own way. He took on that division. He took on that distance, death. And God paid that price for us on the cross. You might have heard before that the 20th century was the bloodiest century in all of human history with multiple uh, world wars, conflict, aggression, terrorism, political tension. And much like the human series, off the the background of such devastation, there are also moments of great peace that signal that we were made for something more than that. Something different than that. One of the most famous of those stories is that come, one that comes from the early period of World War I, where uh, the Germans and the British were pegged back in their trenches, fighting on the Western Front, and in between their trenches uh, was no man's land, uh, if you can bring to mind uh, what World War I would have looked like. Uh, and then as the Germans and the English were fighting, Christmas Eve came. And because it was Christmas Eve, the, the Germans kind of put in their trench Christmas tree and lights and they started singing Christmas carols in German and the British, because of the carols and the tune, they, they recognized the tune, couldn't understand the, the language and yet joined in with the tune in English. And so they would sing carols together and you could hear it across apparently no man's land in each trench and then those carols turned into shouting Christmas greetings across no man's land to one another until finally one of the Germans poked their head up, risking his head up on the trench to say good day to the British and to signal to them that he was going to come out and, and meet them in no man's land, unarmed and keen to chat. And so from Christmas Eve through Christmas Day, the Germans and the British came out of their trenches. We're told apparently they gave each other haircuts. They exchanged gifts. They chatted. They played soccer together. Peace in the midst of war. And the work of Jesus, similarly, it brings people together. It reconciles the world that when we meet him, when we know that God has come in the flesh for us to die in our place, suddenly we, we want to reconcile with, with, with other people whom Jesus' offer goes to them. And yet, even more profoundly, God has come to reconcile us not only to each other, but to the God who made us. One of Jesus' closest friends, not John, but Peter, he also said, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And so just like Paul in Colossians, just like Peter here, just like the angels in their singing, peace can come on earth. Peace can come into your life, when we trust in the blood that Jesus has spilled in our place for us on the cross. The kind of peace that we long for in the world, the kind of uh, utopia that human ingenuity and technological advancement is aiming at, the kind of peace that your soul was made for. You can experience that. You can have that with the God who made you, not by our advancement, not by pretending we're more than we are, but by God's condescension, God's humiliation in taking on flesh and coming to serve us. John Piper says it well when he writes, The incarnation, or Christmas, was the preparation of nerve endings for the nails of the cross. Jesus needed a broad human back for a place to be scourged. He needed a brow and a skull as a place for the thorns. He needed cheeks for Judas' kiss and soldiers' spit. He needed hands and feet for spikes. He needed a side as a place for the sword to pierce. He needed a brain and a spinal cord with no vinegar and no gall so that he could feel the entire excruciating death for you. And so Jesus experienced war himself so that you and I could experience peace with him. This otherworldly, kind of peace that we can only experience when we lay our weapons down when we choose to look beyond doing life better look beyond religious performativity and we accept this gift of the life and death of Jesus god in the flesh in our place and the good news is is that that is all it takes acceptance trust A a, a repentance of, of turning from our distance and division with God to a faith or a trust that Jesus has bridged that gap for us. So this Christmas, God is not calling you to fix yourself. God's not calling you to shape up. God's not calling you to get to church 52 times instead of once a year. God's simply calling you to see Christmas for what it is. Him entering into the world to save you to reconcile you with him, to bring you to himself. So if you're not a Christian today, maybe you walked in just wanting to check out or maybe you're here because you got dragged along by someone who comes regularly, let me encourage you to consider this Jesus. Consider what it means for you that God took on flesh to come, not just to come to reveal himself to the world out there, but for you to live your life, to die your death, to rise again so that you could be reconciled with God. And if you are a Christian here today, well, let me encourage you to remind yourself again of of this reality, that there is nothing special about you. There is nothing in you that has earned this or deserves this. There's nothing in you that has qualified you for this. That none of us are reconciled to God by our own sweat, blood and tears, but rather, We're told by the blood of His cross that it is only by God's grace that we can delight in this, that we can celebrate this, that we can be right with Him. And so I'm going to land the plane now by praying and then I'm going to lead us in a time of communion and singing. So I'm going to invite us as I do pray that maybe you're here and you have a particular urge to want to pray to God. And so I'm going to be praying with you and for you and if you are here uh, and, and you want to uh, do that, you want to continue that conversation, that's simply what prayer is, continuing that uh, conversation with God, then let me encourage you to talk to the person who you came along with today. Uh, talk to me. would be more than happy uh, to chat to you about what it means this Christmas to come and trust in Jesus and begin a life reconciled to the God who made you. So would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, uh, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for the precious gift that Christmas is to us because by it, you took on flesh in Jesus and came to us. Lord, we thank you that even though you have seen our hearts, even though we have followed our first parents in division and distance from you, that even though you know who we really are, Lord, you still... Have come out of your great love for us and for the world so that we would be reconciled to you. We thank you that you've sent your Son to live perfectly, to die as our substitute, and then to rise again in victory. And so this morning, Lord, we repent of being unreconciled with you. We repent of that distance, we repent of that division. And we turn to you. And some of us turn to you for the first time. Some of of us turn to you again. And we confess our trust in you. Help us to trust in Jesus. To not look within. To not look to the world. But to look to you. So that you might be given all the glory and all the praise for what you have done for us. We thank you that in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and that through him you have been able to reconcile us to yourself, making peace by the blood of your cross. Keep us in your love. Keep us in that peace, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.